right, we have been looking at Reformed theology, specifically the five points of Calvinism, which is this fun little acronym, TULIP. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. And today we look at the L, which is probably the most controversial point of Reformed theology, limited atonement. people first hear this explained, they want to cuss. And you might as well. I did when I first heard this. This is the point where people feel like they want to only be a four-point Calvinist. Sometimes when people say, I'm a, I'm a four-point Calvinist, the one that they want to get rid of is this one, the L. And we're going to get into why that is here in a little bit. But I don't think that this has to be explosive and controversial and icky. I think that this doctrinal point here is consistent with the flow of everything that we've looked at, and it's actually really good news. So let me define it, and then we're going to defend it. Here is the definition of limited atonement. It's this. Christ's atoning death was effectual only for the elect. It's a fancy way of saying this. Christ only died for the salvation of the elect. Christ's death, it, it truly and actually absorbed God's wrath against them and it secured the salvation of his chosen people. Now remember, the five points of Calvinism are a response to the language that the Arminians set up. We talked about this in our first historical introduction. But my only point here is that the language at this point is a bit unfortunate. This is why some Reformed people prefer the language of particular atonement or definite atonement as opposed to, quote, limited atonement because it makes it seem so... Uh, negative in tone. But but the issue with this point is not who is saved and who isn't. In other words, the issue here is not the extent of the atonement, but the intent of the atonement. Let, let's put it this way on the front end. The question is, did Christ make salvation possible or did Christ actually accomplish salvation? That is the question that this doctrine is trying to answer. Is the atonement, was salvation just made possible or was it actually effective? Did it accomplish what it intended? So let's try to defend that because that is a bomb that I just dropped on your face. And let's try to defend it under four big headings. Let's look at number one, the nature of atonement. Number two, the meaning of the word limited. Number three, the unity of the Trinity. And number four, the options of the cross. So that's the big roadmap of what we're going to look at today in this little episode. Let's begin with number one, the nature of atonement. That word atonement, literally, it just means covering. 
It's how you deal with an offense. So in the Old Testament, God demands sacrifices as an atonement. If the life of the creature sinned against God, then that life is now forfeit. But in God's mercy, he allows for there to be another life that gets taken in its place. This is where you have bulls and lambs. Atonement is a covering for sin. But of course, none of those sacrifices actually atoned for your sin. All of those sacrifices simply pointed to Jesus, the ultimate atonement, the ultimate sacrifice who takes away your sin. So let, let's look at this. Let's look at two subheadings here. Subheading number one, uh, Jesus's death was effectual, which means that it worked. It accomplished what God intended from it. And I want you to pay particular attention to the language used about Jesus's death. Is the language that his death actually secured salvation or is the language that, he, that his death simply made salvation possible? 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hebrews 9, 26, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All these verses are talking about Jesus' death as a sacrifice, which is just echoing the Old Testament sacrificial system language, namely the language of substitution, where the sacrificed animal was killed in the place of a sinner. That's important. But let's keep going with uh, a few more. Romans 3.25, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word that you keep hearing, propitiation, propitiation, this just means to turn aside God's wrath in offering himself as our substitutionary sacrifice. God turns aside God's wrath from us because he took it upon himself in our place. Uh, we, we, we sing about this in the song, In Christ Alone. There's a line that says, Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That is talking about this big, clunky Bible word, propitiation. All right, let's look at a couple more. Romans 5, verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Colossians 1, 19 through 22. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Reconciled, reconciliation. This means to make friends again those who were enemies. And just to get really nerdy and technical here, the verb tense there is aorist. The verb tense is aorist in Greek, simply meaning it's a completed past action. In other words, he has reconciled us to God. Past tense, completed action. Here are a few more. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. All this language of he's obtaining you by his blood, he's purchased you by his blood, he's redeemed you, he's ransomed you. This is all slave market terminology where a slave is freed through a purchase. And the slave who has been purchased is redeemed from his bondage, out of his bondage, and it's Christ's blood that has done it. It's Christ's blood that has freed us from the bondage and the curse of sin. So that's a very broad overview, but that's the language that the Bible uses to refer to Christ's death, that it's a sacrifice, that it's a propitiation, that it reconciles us, that it redeems us out of slavery. Here is why this is so important. If Christ died for some people who in the end are going to perish eternally, then his death did not secure the actual salvation of all the people that it was designed for. So that's a big statement. In other words, if Christ died for the sins of all mankind, then why are some men suffering the punishment for their sins that Christ died for? If he died for them, how can what he did for them be called substitutionary? How can it be called a sacrifice for them? How can it be called a propitiation that actually turns aside God's wrath? How can it actually reconcile us? How can it be called a redemption? In what ways can those words used to describe his death be said to apply for those people that are in hell? In other words, how is it possible that the Bible talks about Jesus's work as a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, as propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, and yet be applied to people to whom are eternally perishing. But I want you to see this other big sub-point here, sub-point two, 
was that Jesus's death was particular. Sub point one was that Jesus's death was effectual. It worked. It, it accomplished what God intended from it. But secondly, Jesus's death was particular. And I'm going to rattle off a bunch of different passages here quickly that show us that Jesus died for a particular group of people, not for every single breathing individual in general. I'm going to, I'm going to blast them quick. Here we go. Matthew 121, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 20, 28, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews 9, 28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, not all, but many. Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. John 10, 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, for his sheep, people that recognize and hear his voice, his people. John 11, 50 through 53, one man should die for the people. Okay, who are the people? He prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He died for his people who are, who are later referred to as the children of God who are scattered abroad. Acts 20, 28. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock to feed the church of the Lord, which he obtained for himself with his own blood. He obtained the church with his own blood. And Ephesians 5 says the same thing. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not every individual, but the church. Romans 8, 32 through 34, he gave him up for us all. Okay, he talks about us all. Who is the all? Then it goes on to say, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Qualifying that word, all. Hebrews 2.17 says uh, that Christ uh, came to make expiation for the sins of the people. Okay, who are the people? Well, Hebrews 3.11 clarifies it to describe them and says, therefore, holy brethren who share in the heavenly call. Those who are called by God are the ones that, that Jesus has made expiation for their sins. Uh, Hebrews 9.15, therefore he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised e eternal inheritance since a death has occurred which redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. Those who are called are those that have been redeemed by Jesus' death. John 17, 4, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished all of the work which you have given me to do. Jesus is referring to his work and saying, I accomplished the work you set out for me to do. It was uh, effectual. And then here's the last one, John 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. 
So that is a slew of verses and ideas, and you can look those up on your own if you want to look more in detail. I just want you to get a broad feel that when the Bible talks about the nature of the atonement, it talks about the it talks about Jesus's death in effectual terms, meaning that it was, it accomplished what it intended to do, and it talks about Jesus's death in particular terms. He died for the many. He died for his people. He died for his church. Let's look at this second big bucket idea here. That was the uh, the nature of atonement. Number two, the meaning of limited. So the atonement is limited, meaning uh, Jesus did not die for everybody. It was able to save everybody, of course, but it was only efficient for those whom the Father gave the Son. The Father said, these are my elect, and the Son went to go get them. Now, it is okay, like I've been saying, it is okay for you to recoil at all of this. But I want to repeat and underscore this, that when we talk about the atonement being limited, we're not talking about it being limited in its ability to save. It is limited for the people it was intended to save. There's an old Dutch theologian that said this, His death was sufficient for all, but not effective for all. His death was sufficient for all, but not effective for all. And what I want you to see under this idea is that the reality is both camps, both theological camps of Arminians and Calvinists, limit the atonement, but in different ways. You either limit it in its scope, which is how Calvinists, quote, limit it, or you limit it in its nature, which I think is what the Arminian camp does. Arminians limit the effectiveness of the atonement by saying that Christ's death is not powerful enough to secure the salvation for all for whom he died. We're going to talk a lot more about this in just a second. I know that's a big statement. But Arminians limit uh, the effectiveness of the atonement by saying that Christ's death was not powerful enough to actually secure the salvation for everyone that he died for. Calvinists believe that the atonement is not limited in its power, but rather it's limited in its design. Thus, this is why uh, many Calvinists prefer the term, as we mentioned before, definite atonement or particular atonement. Here's a fun quote from Charles Spurgeon, who was a Baptist preacher in the 1800s. It's a little snarky, it's a little blunt, but the, the idea, he says, gets across. It goes like this, quote, we are often told that we Calvinists limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is, on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. They say, no, certainly not. And we ask the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? And they answer, no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if 
and then follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you, you say that Christ did not die so as infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When we say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no one can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. I told you. I told you it was a little blunt, a little snarky. I guess that's how people rolled in the 1800s. But you get the idea. Both sides limit the atonement. The question is, does your theological position limit it in its scope or do you limit it in its nature? Big bucket idea number three, the unity of the Trinity. by this? Well, the Bible is clear that the three persons of the Trinity have different roles when it comes to salvation. And we will look at this more in depth in another podcast when we look at the role of the Holy Spirit. But all three persons are on the same page when it comes to salvation. To deny the doctrine of limited atonement It's to throw off the unity that you see within the Trinity in regards to salvation. Think about it. The Father elects some people, not all people, and the Holy Spirit calls and regenerates some people, not all people. So why would we assume that the Son is not on the same page, that his work of redemption applies universally? There would be no unity within the Trinity. It throws off all members of the Trinity being on the same page. And what we see spelled out in this doctrine is that the Father elects some, the Son goes and dies for some, and then this Holy Spirit goes out and regenerates some. All three persons of the Trinity are working towards the same goal, and they're all on the same page. Uh, you can think of it like this. Here's a fun acronym. I guess this is not an acronym. This is an, um, this is an alliteration. Yes, I know that word. Here's a good alliteration. The Father authors your salvation. The Son accomplishes your salvation. And the Spirit applies your salvation. So when we say the Father authors your salvation, he planned it, he predestined it. He, he, he does the electing, the ordaining. And the Son accomplishes your salvation. He actually secured it. He paid for your sins. He propitiated the wrath of God. And the Spirit applies your salvation. He takes what Jesus did and he personalizes it to you. He applies it to you personally and individually. Here's the last number four big topic to discuss today. The options of the cross. We have looked at the nature of atonement, the meaning of limited, the unity of the Trinity, and here's the last thing, the options of the cross. 
John Owen said, you, you basically, you only have three options to make sense of what Jesus's death on the cross meant, what, what it did. Here are the three options. Option number one, Christ died for all of the sins of all men, which would mean that all are saved. Option number two, Christ died for some of the sins of all men, which would mean that no one is saved. Option number three, Christ died for all of the sins of some men, which would mean that those he died for are saved. Option number one is essentially uh, universalism, which is, of course, this could be possible. This is a theological possibility. The only problem is the rest of the Bible clearly is opposed to this. So it can't be option one. Option two, if Christ only died for some sins, then you have a huge problem because this means then that Jesus's death was not a perfect sacrifice for your sins. And now you have to come to God with some of your sins that you have to deal with and pay for personally. It's a terrible option can't be true. Option number three, your only option that is left is what Calvinists are saying, that Jesus's death actually dealt with all of the sins of his people, that Jesus actually accomplished their salvation. But I know at some point, at this point, uh, people will push back and say, no, 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 Matt. He died for all of the sins of all of the people but in order for that salvation to be meaningful, in order for you to kind of unlock it, in order for you to hook into it, you have to believe. Well, I want to, I want to highlight three problems with that, and then we're done. Problem number one is, you could say, it's the sin of unbelief. I would simply respond with a question. Okay, if a person does not believe in Jesus, is that a sin? Is unbelief sin? And I think you have to say, yes, of course. Unbelief is sin. Well, okay. If Jesus died for all the sins for all the people, why did he not die for the sin of unbelief as well? Make sense? It's problem number one. Problem number two is, this is what we mentioned kind of earlier, is that if you buy into that, then you have to admit then that Christ died for some people that will not be saved. And if Christ died for some people that are eternally punished, then how can you refer to what he did as a saving work? It didn't accomplish what it intended. There, there is no power in the blood, as it were. Rather, it, it makes the point that the power is in the will of mankind. I think problem number three is that we ultimately are saving ourselves by summoning faith. That salvation rests with something that you have to do, not in something that Jesus does. Which again, runs counter to the logic of the gospel. That the gospel is, it is finished. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus has done it all and he does not require anything from us in order for us to be saved. So that is limited atonement in a quick, broad overview. And again, like I've been saying, you might be recoiling, vomiting, thrashing, 
sweating. I don't know what you're doing right now. But we're going to put limited atonement like we've been doing with the other uh, points of the five points of Calvinism. We're going to put limited atonement on trial next time and throw a bunch of questions at it and see how we can respond to this. Because, again, this raises a ton of questions. But until then...